This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 24, Exodus chapters 37 through 40. So, enough talk. Enough design phase. Now Betzalel gets to work, and he actually fashions the coffer known to fans of the Indiana Jones Quartet as the Ark of the Covenant. Betzalel's coffer is made of acacia wood. It's overlaid with gold inside and out, with the acacia wood poles to carry it and two-winged sphinxes on the purgation cover facing each other. Betzalel also puts together the table of acacia wood, also overlaid in gold, with a similar ring system for transportation. Much gold is used in the fashioning of the remaining implements, the dishes, the ladles, the jugs and jars, the tongs, the incense burners, as well as the menorah, heavily adorned with floral motifs. Betzalel also makes the, quote, anointing oil of holiness and the fragrant smoking incense pure of perfumer's making. Chapter 38 begins with the construction of the altar, the slaughter site, with its horned corners overlaid in bronze. Betzalel is busy at work, constructing all the relevant implements as well, including the transportation poles. He also forges the basin of bronze and its bronze pedestal out of mirrors, quote, of the women's working force that was doing the work at the entrance of the tent of appointment. And then he bounds the sacred space with columns and hangings made of twisted byssus or flax. The screen of the courtyard gate was weaved by embroiderers out of blue violet, purple, worm scarlet, and twisted byssus thread. Chapter 38 concludes with an accounting of the cast and crew of the dwelling project, as well as the budget of gold, silver, and bronze. Chapter 39 recounts in great detail the materials necessary for the vestments of Aharon, the high priest, with special attention to the ephod and breastpiece, and which stones would make up the four rows of three representing the 12 tribes of Israel. There are also descriptions of the alternating pomegranate filigree with gold bells on the hem of the high priest's tunic, as well as the sacred diadem of holiness. Verse 32 tells us that the construction of the dwelling is finally complete, and Moshe is invited to inspect all the finishes down to the cords and pegs and sockets. Verse 43 reports Moshe's verdict, a solid blessing for a job well done, which is much better than four stars on homestars.com. But what remains is the approval of the client, that is, God, who spends much of chapter 40 instructing Moshe about the proper usage of all the new gear and implements, including the formal initiation of Aharon's sons into their position in the priesthood. All of which begins on the first day of the first new moon in the second year since they left Egypt, when Moshe gives the green light and the dwelling is fully operational. This chapter concludes with the cloud which covered the tent of appointment and, quote, the glory of Adonai filling the dwelling. And how the cloud plays red light, green light with the Jews, whereby it goes up from the tent of appointment they march, but if it does not go up, they do not march. And with that, the book of Exodus comes to a close. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. If you think of structure, of character arc, elements of storytelling that I've alluded to before, then concluding what is probably the most action-packed portion of the Torah, you know, you get to wondering where this story can go from here. 
Because if you think of the Torah, the first part of the Tanakh, not as the Pentateuch, but as a trilogy, it opens up all kinds of interesting parallels, and like any good parallel, sets up the comparison. It sets up a structure of thinking as well. It structures thinking. But, but how can you take a five-book series and suddenly announce that it's really a trilogy? Uh, well, this is where I have to reintroduce a little documentary hypothesis. If you remember from the introductory episode, actually, I'll pause here for a moment so you can go back into the archive and re-listen to it. I'll continue. No, 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 I insist. Really, I'll wait. fine. I'll, I'll, I'll recap a little bit. So the documentary hypothesis argues that the Torah is a composite of four separate complete and coherent documents whose author or authors were assigned letters to represent their texts. J, the Yahwist, who uses Adonai to refer to God, it's believed that J was composed in Judah, perhaps during the reign of King Solomon around 950 BCE. And there's E, the Elohist, who uses Elohim to refer to God. It's believed that E was composed in the northern kingdom of Israel around 850 BCE. Uh, P, or the priestly source, was not written by Jason Priestley, but perhaps by a priest or a group of priests, as the content is exclusively concerned with matters of purity, ritual, and temple particulars. P places the dwelling at the center of Jewish life, literally and figuratively. It is the place where God makes himself present to the people. And the priests are right there to lend a hand. P also organizes time around ever-widening layers of Shabbat units, seven days, seven months, seven years, and seven times seven years. It's believed that P was composed either during the Babylonian exile in the 6th century BCE or shortly after. Other scholars place it earlier, perhaps the beginning of the 7th century BCE. Then there's D, or Deuteronomy. Most scholars agree doesn't mingle with J, E, or P. So what's left? You know, J, E, and P. But you know, if you think about story, plot, and character, all the elements that drive the narrative of the Torah, the history, and about God's place in it, a God who acts, who creates humans in the world where humans are flawed and foible-filled and live in families where brothers are rivals and sometimes kill each other and where... Humans speak many languages and need to work to survive. Most importantly, it's a world where God punishes sinners, and, and God can do this because there's a covenant and a contract between God and the patriarchs who eventually become a nation who, despite all the miracles they witness and the promises they make, break their word and sin and rebel at seemingly every opportunity. So what you're left with is three books, a trilogy of Genesis, Exodus, and Numbers which makes Exodus the middle of the trilogy. And then I began to consider other middles in other trilogies, and, and what came to mind immediately is arguably the greatest middle in the trilogy installment, The Empire Strikes Back, a middle installment regarded to be as good, if not better than, the first one. So for the folks who thought Star Wars was for kids, a badly acted, overly simplistic reworking of the mythical hero's journey, but with laser guns, the middle of the trilogy installment, uh, the title alone, The Empire Strikes Back, gives a hint uh, that their low expectations are going to be profoundly adjusted. So instead of another victory for our heroes, they're handed a serious defeat. The, the tentpole romance stalls, and the hero, well, he gets his hand handed to him, literally. 
And then there is the killer reveal, which throws everything we knew to be true from the first installment into sincere doubt. Turn to the dark side and join me. I'll never join you! You killed my father! No, Luke. I am your father. That's not true! That's impossible! And Princess Leia is your sister. That's not true! That's improbable! And the Empire will be defeated by Ewoks. That's very unlikely. And as a child, I built C-3PO. Huh? And the Force? Well, that's just microscopic bacteria in your bloodstream called midichlorians. Look, if you're not going to take this seriously, I'm out. Or as uh, Emily Asher Perrin wrote, Empire proved to moviegoers goers that the Star Wars universe was a much darker, far more complex place than they had originally anticipated. Full of war, betrayal and death. It showed the audience that being a band of rebels fighting for freedom means that most days you don't blow up the Death Star. Most days, you abandon your base, your friends die all around you, and you have nothing to show for it except the fact that you're alive. For now. But her larger point is that The Empire Strikes Back inadvertently ruined every subsequent trilogy because of Hollywood's feeble attempt to replicate Empire's real feelings. Film studios began to churn out middle installments that were darker than the first film, filled with unforeseen twists and a cliffhangerish but more like a downer ending, which also in her opinion and mine as well were terrible. She, she cites as evidence Back to the Future 2, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Mummy Returns, and even Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest. Of course, with any discussion of this type, the opinion is king. I mean, you know, because for everyone who claims Back to the Future 2 was terrible, there is some guy out there, you know, some Marty McFly partisan who disagrees. Or Joss Whedon, who, will, who took a swipe at The Empire Strikes Back for its ambiguous ending. It's a comeback next week, or in three years, and that upsets me. I go to movies expecting to have a whole experience. If I want a movie that doesn't end, I'll go to a French movie. That's a betrayal of trust to me. A movie has to be complete within itself. It can't just build off the first one or play variations. In a sense, you know, Whedon's critique of Empire's ending is applicable to the ending of Exodus. The Golden Calf debacle results in a purge and a plague. God reconsiders whether he wants to accompany the Jews to Canaan, there's a second anticlimactic set of tablets, and finally the construction of the dwelling, which would normally be cause for great celebration, as it would affirm God's presence on earth amidst the people of Israel. But after all these defeats and setbacks and false starts and stops, it's a, it's a non-eventful event. And then, as I said before, Exodus ends with a game of divine red light, green light. And to paraphrase Emily Asher Perrin, being a band of Jews seeking a better future in Canaan means that most days you don't witness miracles and wonders. Most days you walk the desert. You're hot and uncomfortable. You're eating so much man and quail it comes out of your nose. And you have very little to show for it except for the fact that you're alive. For now. Not the most upbeat ending, but then again I hear that in three years, the next one's coming out, and it has small furry mammals. And it's called Leviticus.
as always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com, or you can leave a comment or question or comment at the iTunes store or at Stitcher Smart Radio. And while you're at it, you can leave a review. That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. As always, you're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 25, where we start the most action-packed book of the Torah, Leviticus, chapters 1 through 3. We'll all come back now. Here.